Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to day two of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Uh, my name is Devin Shapiro, and I'm a first year MBA at Sloan. It's my pleasure to announce from the martial arts to the art of negotiation, sports, science, art, or philosophy. Uh, on our panel, we have uh, Sensei Nick, Theodora. Nailed it. Oh, perfect. Um, a 35 year martial arts instructor and finance executive, and Professor Deepak Malhotra, a negotiations professor at Harvard Business School. Uh, the panel will be about 45 minutes of discussion and then about 10 minutes of Q&A. Uh, if you have a question at the end, please raise your hand and we'll call on you and then we'll come around with the mics so that you can uh, ask your question. With that, I'll hand it over. Thanks very much. Great. All right, right. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to the session. Uh, it's great to spend some time with all of you and uh, with Sensei Nick. Uh, I'm just going to spend uh, a quick moment giving you a little bit of background on who it is that you're dealing with. I'll introduce myself. Sensei Nick will uh, introduce himself, talk a little bit about what we're planning on doing with this panel, and then we'll jump into it. And uh, as was mentioned, if you have any questions at any point, please feel free to uh, raise your hand. We're going to really do Q&A at the end, but if something you know, strikes you as something where you really, really want to jump in, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a small enough room, small enough crowd that we can, we can do that as well. Uh, as mentioned, uh, my name is Deepak Malhotra. I'm at the Harvard Business School. I've been on the faculty there for 17 years. So I got there in 2002. And uh, my area of work is negotiations. Uh, negotiation, deal-making, disputes, conflict, anything related to negotiations I tend to find interesting. Uh, that's what my research and writing is about. That's what my teaching is about. When I do advisory and consulting work, uh, that's usually what it is on negotiation or disputes or diplomacy. Mostly uh, on the business side, dealing with companies, organizations, business people. I also do some work in some other areas. Uh, I do some advisory work uh, for governments that are negotiating armed conflicts or dealing with uh, you know, insurgencies or, or you know, sort of high stakes negotiations. Uh, I do some work uh, with physicians who are trying to think about how to more effectively communicate with their patients to help their patients make better health decisions. I do some work on gun violence now, more recently, thinking about whether there's ways forward uh, on gun policy that might be a little different than the way things have been uh, attempted uh, for solutions before. So the reason I mention all of that is because when, when you think about negotiation from a lot of different lenses and on a lot of different domains, it sort of shapes the way in which you think about negotiation itself, which will probably come out as we go forward. But this way, you have a bit of a sense of who it is that you're dealing with for the next hour. Uh, Sensei Nick uh, is someone that I've known for a few years. Uh, I am a student of his, actually, in his, uh, in his dojo in, uh, in Watertown, Massachusetts. And the only thing I'll say about him before I ask him to introduce himself is, you know, I used to practice martial arts some years ago when I was in Michigan. Uh, that's where I grew up. Uh, when I came to Boston, I spent a lot of time looking for a good dojo, a good school, a good place to, to practice. And I gave up after the first little while of searching. I just, just wasn't really inspired. Uh, my son, who's here, uh, practices uh, Taekwondo. Uh, it wasn't the school that I was going to join. But eventually, after visiting at least a dozen, maybe uh, 15 or 20 schools, uh, I found Sensei Nick's school. And immediately, I decided this is, this is the school I want to join. So I've known him for a number of years. He's a very impressive martial artist and also a great teacher. And I think we're going to have a pretty interesting conversation here. And if you can give us a little bit more background, uh, Sensei Nick, about you know, uh, your background in martial arts, the different things that you've studied, and your day job, which is actually something a little different. Great, thank you. And thanks for everyone coming down. We know who we're competing against uh, in terms of other panelists, so thank you. Um, my name is Nick Theodoro. I've been studying the martial arts since 1983. I'm a six-degree black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu. Uh, just show of hands if anybody is currently training or has ever taken a martial art class of any kind. Maybe a few people? Good. Well, welcome. Um, and you know there's a diverse amount of martial arts. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is actually different than Japanese jiu-jitsu, which is what I show. What we show is a combat version of martial arts. What we're going to talk about is the sport aspect as well, eventually. That's more of the Brazilian side, so there's a lot of grappling. What I've been focused on for the last 35 years, um, once as the head instructor at Boston College, for 11 years showing self-defense to all inbounding students. Uh, now on my own at my own school in Watertown, where we only teach adults and teens. So we're the only school in the Boston area that does not take kids. And the reason for that is what we show is 
street applicable violence. So it's the real deal. Um, we're training with cops, um, regular folks like yourselves, and everything in between. So when we, our niche is really self-defense and street combat from a non-sport perspective. However, I've also trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Aikido, uh, Thai kickboxing, uh, you name it, I've trained in it. I've also studied with the British Royal Air Force in London. Um, so I know the techniques that we show are gonna work on the street, uh, regardless of your size or strength. That's also um, parlating to my business career. I've actually been the CFO. I'm the head of uh, finance at a company called Epsilon, which ironically is a marketing data technology firm that some of you may or may not know. Um, so I'm able to parlay both worlds. And we'll talk a little bit about how martial arts can actually converge with the business world and being an executive in several multi-billion dollar companies, uh, there's absolutely a ton of overlap. Right. So what we're going to try to do in this session, and again, uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of participation as, as questions arise from the audience, but what we're thinking about it is talking a little bit about uh, the sport and the art of the martial arts, about other things that we do in negotiations and other areas. What is the role of data science? What is the role of data analytics in these different things that maybe traditionally have been thought of as more art, less science? Then we're going to start talking a little bit more about the blend of art and science. And then, uh, you know, I guess between the two of us, we've taught for almost, what, 45, 50 years. Uh, you're carrying most of the brunt of it. Uh, what have we learned about teaching these kinds of things? How do we sort of uh, convey to a next generation of folks who are interested in these? What are the sort of barriers you run into when you're trying to educate others uh, in these areas? So we'll talk about all of that, and we'll probably uh, you know, interrupt each other every so often with some follow-ups. We're going to have it as a conversation, a two-way discussion, and then again, a three-way discussion with all of you. And I'm going to get us uh, started. You know, when, when Daryl uh, Morey, who's, who's a good friend of mine, and I were talking about maybe doing a, a panel like this or doing a session like this, and he said, you know, martial arts is something that we've touched on before, but we haven't really gotten into it. Uh, very often uh, at the Sports Analytics Conference, uh, and he wanted me to think about who I might invite to talk about it. One of the first things that actually went through my mind was that it's kind of interesting that we even think of martial arts as a sport. Mm. You know, for centuries, uh, that is not the way martial arts was thought of. Uh, you could think of it as a philosophy, a discipline, tradition, uh, you know, a, an element of one's culture, self-defense. The idea that it would become a sport uh, which is very different from a lot of the other things that are being talked about here. When you talk about basketball or hockey or soccer, these are always sports. They were born as sports, and now we're just getting better at analyzing them as sports. So the question I have for Sensei Nick is, is it, is it a good thing that now martial arts are becoming a sport? Is it sort of uh, sacrilegious? Is there good and bad? Uh, how do we get to where we are? It's, it's astounding how much the martial arts has evolved. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but for those of you that grew up in the 70s and 80s, the martial arts was a little bit campy. If you remember Bruce Lee, even to a certain extent, Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, everybody remember him? That was the image of the martial arts. With the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and, and I'm talking about the original one, if you've ever seen the tape of UFC 1, not the ESPN version, I'm talking about the original one where Hoist Gracie took on all comers of any size and defeated them with this style that nobody had ever heard of called Jiu-Jitsu. That really was when the martial arts turned into a sport for a, a component of martial artists. Not everybody. But I actually think it's a great thing. All publicity is good. The UFC being out there, people contact my school and say, I saw an amazing fight on pay-per-view or on ESPN. I want to learn some element of that. They may not want to become full UFC fighters, but they want to learn that style. Mm -hmm. That's great, I think it's great. But there's still a big component of the martial arts epoch that's combat related. So if you look at the top 10 martial arts, about half, right, mixed martial arts, most of you have heard of that, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Karate, Taekwondo is an Olympic sport, are sports already. Mm -hmm. But the UFC really, mixed martial arts have really elevated the game. But so, so Taekwondo is an interesting example because uh, any of you ever watched Olympic Taekwondo? Any, anybody ever seen that? Um, and again, I don't know your uh, preferences for what you see, but you know, I, I've seen a few of those uh, bouts, and, and they're sort of an abomination. Um, they now, if anything, they're moving towards data and analytics and, and technology, and they have these sensors to check whether, you know, and, and you look at a, you know, a gold uh, medal bout, and there's a guy who throws this fantastic kick that misses the guy completely, but was close enough to, to, you know, to hit the sensors, and the guy gets three points. And if anything, the person who dodged that kick should have gotten, you know. So it's at a point, and, and these people, their hands are down, they're bouncing around, yeah. they're throwing the same roundhouse kicks and, and, and wheel kicks. It's taken what was a really robust art with so much technique and so much 
else to it. And the moment they made it into sport, they had to put it into a box. And, sure. and I think if, if you look at Taekwondo as an Olympic sport, most people look at it and say, I would never want to practice that. But if you go to a good dojo, which is, for example, the one uh, I took my son to, and you see what they do, you're like, this is actually still a pretty great art. So is there some cheapening of it that's happening? Or maybe that's not true with the UFC, but with some of these other but arts. Even with the UFC, um, again, those of you familiar with it, there are actually rules. And you might not think that watching it, but you can't put your thumb, and again, I'm going to get kind of violent, so it looks like we have a... Uh, a good audience for this, but you can't put your thumb three inches into someone's eyeball in the UFC as much as you might want to. Um, there are certain leg locks that are not uh, impermissible. So there's certainly enough of the rules, grind shots and whatnot, um, 12 to 6 elbows that are not allowed that we actually show in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. So if you're talking about survival from a street, anything you do to add rules is going to start to water that down to a certain extent. The UFC and Mexican martial arts have done a pretty good job trying to yeah take out as little as possible mm -hmm. to make it as realistic as possible. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you when we're showing you know, police officers or security folks or just an average mom or dad that wants to learn how to defend themselves in their home or their children, uh, there are no rules. So anytime you're going to add rules, and certainly Taekwondo is a good example if they've gone too far, mm -hmm. anytime you're going to add rules to this, yeah. you're seeing this in other sports, right? You, know, you see the recent news around football yeah. where now that you know, you've changed how you tackle and you're trying to come away from injuries. Mm -hmm. and, um, it changes the sport over time. Yeah. Same thing with martial arts. As you add rules and make it a sport, it gets away from what it was originally created to be. Yeah. Martial being military, right? That's the word yeah. we mean. So it's a military art that's turned into a sport. Yeah. So it's an interesting mix. Yeah, it's interesting. And you're right. The Taekwondo and the UFC are two good examples, uh, very different parts of the spectrum. You know, if you go to a school that wants to train people to be Olympic Taekwondo uh, participants, well, then they teach to the test and they don't let you do certain things that you would otherwise teach them to do. Uh, and so really, teaching the test is not a bad thing. It's just that the test is really bad, right? With the UFC, what you have to do in the, uh, you know, when you're competing uh, in MMA, you still need to actually be a pretty well-rounded martial artist now. So, so maybe the, the tests are just two different things. Uh, when it comes to data analytics specifically, if you look at the panels and the papers that have been presented at this conference, uh, the one thing they... I think all have in common is they all look at MMA uh, slash UFC. And one of the reasons is maybe because it's a, it's a, it's a good place to see martial arts in action uh, in a slightly more traditional sense, but also that's where the data is. There's a lot more data about what happens in these bouts because we have a number of years sure. of, of these things. As a martial artist and as somebody who teaches martial arts and who thinks a lot about self-defense, are there questions that you wish we were answering or maybe we need to still collect the data, but if we had the data, what are the kinds of things that people on the street, people that are in the industry, people that are martial artists, what are the things that they want answered? Not just which technique typically wins in the UFC or which techniques typically go together in the UFC, but broader in the martial arts, what are the questions we want answered where good data might actually help? Yeah, and, I, and again, as a martial arts school owner, and I know most of the largest school owners in America, I'm part of the same association, and my brother has two schools down in New York. Um, there's a huge business and data opportunity for martial arts school owners. I didn't know the stat until I had to look it up for this conference. There are 16,000 martial arts schools, 4 million participants, 4 million. And there's no off-the-shelf SaaS solution to provide data to those owners. And you might think, well, what's, what would be an interesting to a martial art school owner? I could tell you what I have to do. So as a self-defense-focused school, I will go on YouTube and look at actual assaults. They're, unfortunately, they're on there. And I, that way, I can actually craft my classes ripped from the headlines. So if a particular person got attacked a certain way, I will actually build my curriculum around that attack. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had data around physical assaults that occurred by zip code so that we actually know the most, you know, the most common way that someone's being attacked is X, Y, and Z. How many people are attacking that person? Are they using a knife, stick, gun, or bare hands? And that way, that martial arts school owner in that zip code could pull up that data and say, and this is, by the way, this is data that would evolve over time and be rich, and maybe you can you know, augment it with other pieces of demographic data. But let's just start with the most basic. How did the assault occur, by whom, and with what weapons? As a martial arts school owner, Deepak, that would be powerful stuff and I would certainly pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, it would really inform my class and make it more relevant. Part of the martial arts issues, a lot of the schools are old schooly, you know, family type martial arts schools that are teaching very traditional martial arts based on hundreds of years of history. 
one thing that I've done and other school owners are doing, we're trying to modernize it, and that would actually help us quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Second piece, and most people don't realize this, is the injury component of the martial arts. And now you're talking about contact sports, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has a huge rate of injury, unfortunately. Uh, you're doing live grappling, you're gonna tweak a show. Anybody here do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Like, who's with me on this one? Yeah, so you know, you know, you're going in for an armbar, your opponent's had a bad day out of the office, and they're ripping on that Kimura, your shoulder's going. So what would be interesting to me also as a school owner, are what moves are causing the most injuries? It's just a database of, you know, if we were able to kind of tweak this a little bit, we could prevent some of the injuries that are causing the high turnover in certain martial arts. So really like a safety database around the analytics on moves and techniques that are causing particular injuries. Um, and then the last thing, and again, Deepak and I were talking before, I know at the UFC level and at the professional MMA level, there are statistics around moves that win, high percentage techniques and finishes that win. But there are millions, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe hundreds of thousands of participants in amateur MMA. My nephew, who's 17 years old, competes in the Naga grappling tournament. What would be interesting to know is what are the high win probability moves that occur in a particular age group and in a particular weight class. So what are the wins? Are we people winning with chokes, submissions, um, geese submissions, I should say, arm bars? And is that happening across all weight categories in every age group? Those statistics, live, I'm talking about the average person, not just the professionals, would be immensely popular hmm. and very helpful. It's interesting, because even with the data not being there, it sounds like you're out there looking for the data even though it's pretty... Grassroots, it's, yes. not, it's not fun. Well, at least you have YouTube and, and assault data. <laughs> uh, that's, that's something. And, and, and as, as a student in this class, I will say, there are often classes that begin with, hey, you know, I saw this and here's the thing, or, or people get into the situation, I just read this thing where somebody in, in Charleston, or, you know, there's these stories come in, and they're not just anecdotes to motivate today's class and get you inspired. It, it really does feed into, okay, so now let's think about what actually happens when you find yourself in these situations. And, and what you do is you often say to folks, okay, you get out here, let's say this is the situation, what would you do? What's your instinct? What's your intuition? And then you'll break that down and you'll say, okay, here's what's right and wrong with the intuition. Okay, that's good that you did this and this, but think about the problems here. And it just goes to show that, you know, often our instincts, our intuitions, uh, while they may come from, you know, the motivation of self-preservation, aren't always completely attuned to what works actually on the street. And so getting those intuitions yep. right, based on data and based on good experience, can be pretty, pretty powerful, uh, it seems. So Deepak, let me kind of switch gears here. We've been talking a lot about the martial arts and data, and I appreciate that. Um, can you elaborate on how important data is to a successful negotiation? You've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Um, what kind of preparation do you do analytically in advance? So, you know, as, as a negotiator, uh, one of the things I, I tell all my students and I tell all my clients is that, um, you know, people have very different mindsets when they walk into a negotiation. Some people think of it as a sport. Some people think of it as war. Some people think of it as an opportunity to build a relationship. Some people have a long-term focus. Some people are much more short-term. Some are more strategic, some more tactical. You can have, there's no limit to the kind of mindset you can have as a negotiator. But what I always suggest to folks is that if you could only have one mindset, if there's only just one button you could press to activate a certain mindset before you walked into every future negotiation, you just had to pick one, I would strongly suggest walking into every negotiation with a learning mindset. Hmm. As a negotiator, you are there above all else. Now, it's not your only objective, but you are there above all else to learn as much as you can about the situation that you're in and the people that are relevant to that negotiation. Not just the people who happen to be in the room with you, but all the people, all the parties that are relevant that could somehow influence the negotiation or are influenced by the negotiation. Having that learning mindset is just perfectly coupled with this notion of information, data, before you walk in. So when I advise on deals, for example, uh, the first day uh, is a strategy meeting where I say anybody who's relevant on our side of the negotiation, let's put them in a room together. I almost always insist that I fly to my client's city. Mm. It would be a lot easier for me and my family if I always just told them to come to me. But the reason I don't do it is because when I tell somebody to come see me in Boston, usually too few people show up. Just the CEO shows up or the CEO shows up in the GC or the CEO and the CFO, they show up and they sit in my office. But I want access to more parties in that organization. Mm. I want the third, fourth, fifth, sixth person who has some idea about what might be going on in this negotiation, what might or might not work, what the problems might be to show up in that room. Now the sixth person doesn't add as much data, as much information as the first person. But not only does it add incrementally more information, and sometimes it's that increment on which the, the negotiation pivots, but it also changes the conversation in the room. So as so we go there, and the only two requirements I have when I walk in 
other than making sure there's enough people in the room, is I say, we need to have unlimited coffee, which is for obvious reasons, and then we need to have just a ton of whiteboards, just a lot of whiteboards up there. And one of the first things we'll often do is map out what I call the negotiation space. The negotiation space is basically who are all the parties that are in any way relevant to this negotiation or this dispute or this crisis or whatever it might be. And then we start digging down into what are their interests, what are their constraints, what are their alternatives, what are their perspectives. And what we're trying to do is just get all that information out there. Now you'll never as a negotiator have all the information you wish you had. Just like in the martial arts, somebody's attacking you. You have some data, you have where you are, what kind of floor you're on, what you're wearing, how big is this person, how are they standing, you'll have some data, but you don't have all the data. But what you're doing is constantly, before you walk into the room, when you're in that room, and every moment, afterwards trying to get as much of that information and that data as you can. If you're doing the Iran nuclear deal, you need data. You bring an actual nuclear physicist to the table. Yep. If you're doing a trade deal uh, with China, same thing. You need people to think about what are the things we should be asking for, what are the things we're willing to give on. What is the other side's perspective? What are they really going to push for? What are their red lines? What keeps them up at night? Why are they here today rather than six weeks from now or six months? Who do they send to the room? All of that information feeds into your strategy and your likelihood of success. Right. And when you walk in unprepared, without that data, without having that sort of hunger for just knowing more about all the parties, what motivates them, and why they're there, and what are the things they can and cannot do. And that's an important thing too, understanding the constraints the other side has. You know, there are things in negotiations that you are sure you deserve, that you are sure are rightfully yours, which you will not get, simply because their hands are really tied. Right. And the better you understand where their hands are tied and where they have more flexibility, the more likely you can navigate the negotiation in a direction which allows you to accomplish your objectives and at the same time meets theirs so that you can actually get a deal done. And so for, for a negotiator, that learning mindset, that preparedness, that data, that information is, is crucial. That's great. Yeah. So let's bring it to the sports world for a second. Mm -hmm. How important are there, you have examples of the importance of negotiations and data in the sports world specifically? So we can think about it sort of in, in, in two ways. There, there's a level at which it's sort of obviously relevant, right? So if you're a, if you're a team, if you're an NBA team, uh, and this is where, you know, what Daryl spends a lot of time on, the data and the better the data and the better analyze the data, it tells you what negotiations you should even be a part of. What are the kinds of uh, talent we should actually be trying to recruit and which ones, while they look very nice and very great and seem to check a lot of the boxes when you look carefully, aren't gonna actually add to your team. So just at a, a filter level, thinking about what are the assets, what are they worth to us, how much we're willing to, uh, to exchange for them is increasingly a data game now. And the ones that play that game better are not just negotiating more effectively at the table, much more importantly, they're wiser about which negotiations to even do. And as, as a strategist, as a negotiator, as a leader of an organization or a team, that's often the biggest decision you can make that's gonna have an impact. At the end of the day, the, you know, the needle might move a little bit as to how many assets you gave up in order to get what you wanted, but if you're in the wrong negotiation, no amount of negotiation prowess at the table is gonna make a difference. Hmm. So, so thinking about which negotiations to even participate in is now a very different game than it used to be. So that's, that's on the data side. <clears throat> There's something else that's happening, I think, and I think needs to happen more and is very useful is on the modeling side. So, you know, I, I, for a while I studied, uh, you, know, you know, CBA negotiations, collective bargaining agreements between owners and players across different, different sports. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you quickly realize is that, you know, over the last 25 years, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, conflict and disputes and a lot of, uh, you know, difficulties in some of these CBA negotiations. One of the, the, or probably the uh, area where most value gets destroyed. Like if you want to look at the league that destroys the most amount of value when they negotiate, it has to be hands down the National Hockey League. With regularity, when the owners and the players' representatives sit, sit down every few years, they end up destroying between half a season and an entire season of revenue because they can't get the negotiation done. So they have lockouts and strikes. And there's reasons for that. There's historic reasons for that. But the more interesting thing is that almost every single time one of these negotiations has ended, when the, uh, other than in 1992, everyone after 1992, when, when the smoke cleared uh, days later, almost all of the analysts were saying, looks like the owners won. The owners got everything they wanted, blah, blah, blah. You fast forward a few years and everybody, including the owners are saying, we got hosed. <laughs> now, there's not that many negotiations that you can think of where the negotiation ends and everybody, 
seems to get it wrong as to who won that negotiation, if, right. if winning is the right way to think about it even. And the reason is these are complex negotiations. You are trading on so many different items that sort of correlate with each other. So if you're changing rules regarding rookies and free agency, at the same time you're changing uh, you know, what kind of uh, luxury tax system there's going to be, uh, what kind of uh, you know, min salaries and salary caps there's going to be, and you're changing, you know, you change four or five of these things and they interact. It's actually hard to predict net, are owners going to be dishing out more money or less? Are they going to be getting better players or worse players? And are they going to have to correct that? And, and so because of the complexity of these negotiations, and these CBAs are there a few hundred pages long, and you start tweaking some of these things, which individually you know which thing you want, but it's a complex system and you're going to have to make some trades. So they actually hire game theorists now on both mm. sides to try and model it out. Because certain concessions maybe make a lot of sense, but only if in conjunction with others. Something that you'd be willing to trade away maybe doesn't make any more sense because you realize you can't get these other things that you wanted. Mm. So being better at modeling, uh, which is a little bit different than just having the data, but it's, it's clearly related, I think it's very important for these complex things. Even some of the things that are being talked about today, um, you know, uh, if you were at the Adam Silver uh, session yesterday, um, you know, B Bill mentioned that he's just not going to talk about tanking and all these things. But let's say you want to solve a problem like that. You want to solve a problem like, you know, these teams are getting incentivized to lose games, which clearly is bad at some level, even if it's individually good for that team in sort of a, a personal sense. If you're trying to get rid of tanking and you start coming up with rules like, oh, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to flatten out the incentives at the bottom. We're going to make sure that the bottom three teams or four teams get the same likelihood of getting uh, a better draft pick. That sounds great, but I would strongly encourage people to model that out because maybe all you've done is move the margin on which people are going to game it. You just moved which teams are now more likely or less likely to game. You may have increased the likelihood of gaming because now there's three spots you might get into. So thinking this through, uh, it requires careful analysis, not like, well, this isn't working, let's do the not this. Yeah. There's an old story uh, with um, these two game theorists, Adam Brandenberger and, uh, and uh, uh, it's Avinash Dixit. They, they wrote this uh, book some years ago, Thinking Strategically. I think they tell this story about, you know, it's kind of like you, you walked in as a data scientist, but you didn't really understand the sport or the, the field that you're in. And you notice that people are complaining too many football games are being won by field goals. And you want to make it a more exciting game. You want to make it more competitive, more exciting. And so they do some correlations and they realize that, you know what? This is disproportionately happening in fourth quarters. So they remove fourth quarters and they make it a three-period game. Now, that's not going to solve the problem because you don't understand what's actually happening here. I think there's a lot of that that takes place when people rush into negotiations without right. good data, without good models, including in sports. So we've talked a lot around data and obviously the science that comes with it, but a few of us that are not, I'm, so I'm not a data analyst, obviously, okay? I'm a martial artist, but we all negotiate at some point in our lives. So for me, at least one of the questions I definitely had was how much of successful negotiating is science, principles, proven methods, techniques, yeah. versus art, yeah. right? Your ability to improvise in the moment, reading the situation real time, which sometimes martial artists have to do. We have three seconds to figure out what's gonna happen, maybe yeah. under. Someone's standing in front of me. I've got to actually figure out all the stuff you did. Yeah. You just talked about for days. Yeah. I have to get all that information about that attacker. Is he on drugs? Is he drunk? That's going to actually inform what I'm going to do next. Does he have a weapon? What's the situation around me? Yeah. Why is he angry? Does he want to mug me, just take some money? Or does he want to harm me? Why does he want to harm me? You have to do all that in under two seconds. Because yeah. that attack's coming pretty quickly. Yeah. So it's a little different. That's more... Um, Art backed by science. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, in a so, bit. so I'm gonna I want to find out how, yeah. how you how you make that uh, the judgment. But how there. do you think about it? So, uh, how many of you would say that negotiation is a part of your job or, or your daily lives to a decent amount of? It's good. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and I would say actually everybody's hand should be up because in some ways, uh, at least from my perspective, negotiation is fundamentally not about dollars and cents or deal terms or lives lost or lives saved. You know, what I always tell my students is negotiation is always fundamentally about the same one thing. And that one thing is human interaction. And the question we're always trying to answer as negotiators and the, the, the problem we're always trying to solve is how do we engage with other people in such a way as to achieve better understandings and better agreements? That's it. It doesn't matter what you're negotiating over, who the person is, what the substance of the deal is. How do we engage with someone to achieve better understandings, better agreements in a world where we're dealing with people who have different interests, different perspectives than we do? 
Now, the science versus art is kind of interesting because if you look at, if you've practiced in your life theater or dance um, or you played an instrument, martial arts, sports, typically what happens is we start by teaching the science. We start by teaching techniques or tactics, right? So in certain, you know, you don't teach forms, but in a lot of schools, they'll teach certain katas and forms. Uh, in, in dance, you'll teach a little bit about rhythm and footwork and, 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 and beats. But what ends up happening is the idea is not to memorize a form or memorize a piano piece that you learned and then just do that for the rest of your life. Uh, what ends up happening is over time what you're trying to do is shed that set of techniques and understand the underlying principles. Yep. And the difference between science and art in, in negotiation, and I would suspect in, in a lot of other areas, is when you take the science, you take the techniques, you take everything, and realize that all of it was for the purpose of getting you to fully embrace and understand the principles. After which, you never do something in an actual negotiation which you practice in a classroom, right. right? You never, I don't think there's ever been an attack, and there's probably been an infinite number of attacks almost in the history of the world. I can guarantee no attack on the street was ever foiled by somebody doing a full form that they had learned. It's just impossible. But the idea was when you do that, you learn certain principles. You learn principles about balance and movement and, and rotation and pressure and whatever. Yep. And in negotiations, same thing. We do lots of cases, exercises, we teach, and we're teaching a lot of techniques and tactics and here's what you can do. But underlying all of that is a set of principles about you know, don't negotiate position, negotiate interests, negotiate process before substance, the learning mindset, control the frame of the negotiation. These higher level principles are much more easier to sort of absorb once you've seen them in action a lot of different times. So when you get yourself in a negotiation, in that moment, you don't open up a negotiation book, you don't try to remember everything your professor said, you don't try to think about everything you did in the last negotiation, but you say, wait a second, let's get back to fundamentals. What do the fundamentals, the principles, tell me I should do in this situation? Right. So it's your principles married with what is my understanding of the situation that I'm in today? And it might be a little bit different than last week, which means I might have to do something different tactically. I will not be using different principles. Right. Which principles I apply more and less will change, but the principles will stay the same. The tactics I use, whether I lean in and get aggressive or I lean back and smile, you know, whether I make one offer or two offers, whether I make an offer or let them make an offer, whether I walk away from the table or say, no, let's, let's stay here. Those tactics are gonna change based on the situation. What's not gonna change is the principles that are guiding me to make that judgment in that moment. Hmm. And ideally, we're trying to get people, and you can't do it in a, in a one semester class and you can't do it in a one week class, but you're trying to put them on the path towards not just having enough of the science and techniques, but to let them know over the weeks, months, years ahead, this is your practice. This is what you're gonna to wanna to be doing when you're out there so that you get a, to become a better negotiator. Makes sense. Martial arts, science versus art. Yeah. Is what's, how do you think about the blend? You said you have three seconds. I mean, we usually have more than three seconds in a negotiation. <laughs> Thankfully. Uh, uh, but in, in your situation, is it that whatever you can get intuitively in that moment, that's what's gonna come out? Is there, is there something more to it than that? What, what? Yeah, the, the, my favorite question, I've, I've promoted about 75, I've been doing this for too long, I've promoted about 75 black belts over the years. Uh, two of my black belts have their own schools and have been doing that for a decade. So I've got like jujitsu grandkids, right? That's how, that's how long I've been doing it. The black belts have black belts now. It's, um, it's amazing. The first question people ask me when they sign up a lot of times is, how long till I get a black belt? And that's when you face palm yourself and you go, you're missing, this is gonna be a long journey. If you're asking yourself how long it's gonna take a black belt, you've got the wrong thing in mind. And I'll tell you how it pertains to science and art. I can actually teach anyone in this room the black belt curriculum, the science, in six months, maybe even less. We'll just, we'll crank through all the techniques. We'll physically train, I'll show you everything, and you'll be able to apply zero of them in a street situation because you don't have the art part. The science is actually learning the technique going through the mechanics of how to break an elbow in two directions. Um, if you ever want to see me light up, when I talk about arm bars, I get really excited, so bear with me. But how to throw someone, if you're a 120-pound woman, how you can throw a 300-pound guy over your hip and drop him and knock his wind out. That's exciting. That's the science part of it. The art is when that guy's coming at you in under a second, you weren't ready for it, how do you execute? So back to the principles, the principles that we teach is really through instinctive drills. You've got to do a lot of unstructured training 
where you don't know what's coming, where you've got an attacker that's simulating street conditions or an MMA, you know, a, a competitive scenario, where you're having to get to practice and lose, often, by the way, your techniques. And it's through that trial and error, and you have to be comfortable with losing to get the art part of what we do. Hmm. So you've got to go, so we will stress test our students the art part of testing the science. So we have multiple attackers that will surround you for one of your tests, and they will attack you any which way they like, and sometimes it will go well for you, and sometimes it won't. But they learn through the process. It's not just the end result, did I defend myself? But that's how you develop the art. But it's, we also do a lot of role playing, and the art part is very interesting. I'll tell a story about, um, I used to bounce for three years, and it's back to the application mm -hmm. of principles. I never learned this scenario, training with my instructor. I got caught between a, um, there was a little lobby area of the bar I was training, I was uh, bouncing in, and I was stuck between the outside door and the inside door. Me and about nine guys, no joke. And I didn't realize that my backup bouncers were stuck behind the glass door behind me. So it's just me, and these guys, we were in a very tight room, maybe the size of these three little squares here. And there was that moment of truth where I was like, how is this gonna end? And these guys were very belligerent. And I had to get them out the door. And obviously, if it's nine on one, six degree blackboard or not, um, it's gonna get messy. So quickly, thought about science versus art in my head. I said, how do I get these guys out of here and negotiate? Mm -hmm. I don't think I've even told you this story. So I said, gentlemen, I would like you guys to leave. Now we could do this one of two ways. You could just walk out right now, and none of us will get hurt. None of us will get hurt. You'll walk out, and I'll go inside and tell everybody that you guys are tougher than me, because now his ego is getting involved. So I'm sure like negotiations. Yeah. I said, or we could do this the physical way. Now here's what's gonna happen. The three closest guys next to me are not gonna make it. You're gonna end up in the hospital badly hurt. I'm gonna get hurt too, but you three are definitely gonna be injured. You might not survive, by the way. And you can see, I was watching for physical cues. It's very similar to negotiation. The guy directly in front of me, who was about two inches from my face, audibly gulped. And I knew I had him, I didn't react. And we stared at each other. He looked at me, I looked at him. One of us was gonna blink. He said, I think it's time for us to go. And we walked out, went by inside, and changed my underwear, and then the rest of the night was great. <laughs> All right, so was I nervous? Sure, but I had been prepared for the scenario to do what I said I was gonna do. The most important thing about a negotiation in martial arts is to be able to back it up. Like, say what you mean and mean what you say. So if I meant what I said, and I did, by the way, sincerely, those guys knew it. And so anytime you're negotiating, if the other party doesn't understand that you're actually sincere, they're gonna read right through that. And the martial arts is the, yeah. you know, the epitome of that. That attacker, I've dealt with this multiple times, the best thing that we teach our students is to walk, how do you get someone to walk away without any physical harm? We don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. But you have to have so much training under your belt that the person staring across you, because they might be a foot taller than you, outweigh you by 50 pounds, but they've got to look into your eyes and see fear in their own eyes. Like it's going to reflect right back, they're going to go, oh, I've seen this. I've, you know, convince people a lot larger than me that fighting me would be a bad idea. Not because I said I'm a six-week black belt, I rolled out my resume in the slide presentation behind me. It's because I said, listen, this is a really bad idea for both of us. And you sort of give them a chance to walk away. Um, that's the art part. Mm -hmm. And that comes through a lot of the drilling, but this, you know, the science is the technique. The art is working all those scenarios with those techniques in mind. Mm -hmm. So, uh you know, it's interesting, by the way, you said the thing about credibility. I'll just, you know, point to that for a moment. There's maybe three things that I will sometimes say fit the category of most great negotiators that I know, dot, dot, dot. Because people have very different styles and different approaches. Mm. Credibility is one of those. Uh, I will tell you, that some of, if you look across in, in diplomacy and politics and crisis negotiations and business negotiations, the one thing I can say about the really effective negotiators, these people will guard their credibility with their life. Mm. As you said, if they say they're gonna do something, they're gonna do it. If they don't think they're gonna be able to do it, they will not suggest that they will. These people guard their credibility with their life. And the reason is, I think if you stay at it long enough, um, if, if you're in the, in the field long enough, you will come to a day where the only leverage you have in that negotiation is your credibility. You have sure. nothing else. That's the only reason this person's gonna sit down with you. It's the only reason they're gonna take the risk you're asking them to take. It's the only reason they're gonna go on the journey with you that you're asking them to go on. You have nothing else except they say, I believe this person, 
or this person's credible, or they're going to follow through on what they said. For sure. And on that day, you're very, very happy that you never let that credibility sort of slip away. And it's one of those markers of somebody who I think is actually a very, very great negotiator. And I want to sort of parlay that into the martial arts and thinking about, in, in your many years, uh, training people and, and practicing with other great martial artists. How would you define mastery? Is it just doing the things that you said previously? Are there markers of it? Like you, you interact with someone and, and can you sort of quickly or in some way uh, say, you know, this person is an amazing martial artist. Forget the belt or whatever, but this person is a great martial artist. What, what sort of yeah. says that to you? And mastery is an interesting word because people use it a lot in different fields. Um, to, I watched the chess guy today. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a grandmaster. Um, and by the way, he is. <laughs> like, was it a, I think it was 12 boards? 10, ten boards. So I like watching masters in any field, because it's just as a six-degree black belt and just having done something I've done for so long, no matter what the field is, it's impressive to watch a master. Yeah. So I, I looked it up in a dictionary. Like, what is the true literal meaning of mastery, master? And it says comprehensive knowledge or skill in a subject or accomplishment. It's kind of boring. But in the martial arts, here's the issue. I'm actually a master. Six-degree black belt, you're a master. And how many times have I referred to myself as a master? Ah, uh, never. Never. I call myself a sensei, which is instructor. I don't like the word. So there's, to me, in the martial arts and most things, mastery is the journey. There's no destination to become a master. Like the mastery is not you've arrived and now you're a master. I bow forward, everybody you know, gives me a high five and we move forward. Mastery is that process along the way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I won't, and I eat my own dog food, I will not call myself a master. So to me, I think you know, with a master, it's funny, you will know it when you see it. And today I saw it, by the way, the, yeah. the chess, uh, what was it, Robert? Yeah, Robert. It was incredible. Um, if you've watched a basketball player you know, hitting three-pointers from you know, out three, three rows up, yeah. and you look and you say, you know, I, I watch Kyrie, to me, say what you want about you know, his off-court stuff, but the guy is a master, he's a magician. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable to watch someone at the prime of their game, but he's still working his art. The amount of work that goes into that three-point shot, the hours that you put in, is part of the mastery. Yeah. And so, as I think about in the martial arts, we define the mastery, if you will, as mind and body unification. It's that when a guy is standing in front of you, and you're saying, I want to punch him right through the nose, you're saying that in your mind, but you, will your body actually agree? Not easy. People freeze. That's the hardest thing we have to unteach, is that your natural freeze. You will freeze. If, you know, if one of us was toe-to-toe -to -toe right now, and that moment came, most of you without training will freeze. The mastery comes through that mind and body unification. Mm -hmm. Well, you may know you want to strike me, you want to knee me or elbow me, but you won't do it. Your body won't let you do it. You're not prepared for that moment. How many of us have ever had a freeze moment outside of martial arts? Anybody? Like you're in an interview, first date, right? How many of those regrettable moments you've looked back and went, oh, I wanted to say that. Well, my body did something I didn't want the mind. And that unification in martial arts is life or death. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it's working toward that process. Um, and it's doing it without thinking. So I think you know, where 35 years of training comes in is instinctual reaction. Mm -hmm. So I have been lucky enough to you know, have to defend myself a few times. And Deepak, none of those times did I think about what I was going to do. I just did it. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a definition of mastery, and you know, somewhat humble one, if you can, is that you're reacting instinctively mm -hmm. from your subconscious, but through your multiple years of training. If you've trained correctly, you will just react. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, my, uh, I had an instructor in Michigan who I'm still very close to is uh, Sifu Brown. He teaches Kung Fu. What's interesting is he teaches Kung Fu, uh, Sensei Nick teaches Jiu Jitsu, but what they both have in common is there's like 85% overlap in what they actually teach because they're both sort of mixed martial mm -hmm. arts, uh, sort of, they're, they're fans of what actually works. So they, so they go, they, they study many different arts, they come from different anchor arts, but they, they, they extend. And uh, he was telling a story once, which, which goes right to this, he said um, he was in a, uh, when he was younger, he was working at this place where uh, some folks that might have emotional uh, or sort of uh, mental um, problems where they have, uh, they've been institutionalized or they might be there uh, voluntarily, maybe not. He was there helping out, he just had a side job. And, uh, one of his fellow workers once said to him, because he was known to be a, a martial artist and he'd been practicing for maybe two decades already, he said to him something like, um, hey, so you know when things get physical and sometimes these people get aggressive and everybody gets called in to sort of restrain them? Um, he says, when you're in one of those situations and if nobody else is there, it's just you, do you ever end up using your kung fu on them? 
And Sifu Brown says, uh, all, all the time. He's like, what? He's like, you, you can't do that. That's probably not even legal. And Sifu Brown says, you know, it's in that moment when things are getting out of control, the person's getting violent, I'm going to get hurt, they're going to get hurt. That's the moment in which I most need to stay calm and manage the situation in a way that nobody gets hurt. Yep. He says, that's what the Kung Fu teaches me. So that is what I'm using all the time. And if I can't use it then, what's the point of all of this? Right. And I think it goes exactly to the point you're making, which is, and it's, you, you see the, the part of it which is the hitting someone when needed. But as you said earlier, how do we get the situation under control and nobody gets hurt? That yep. seems to be like the highest form of, of self-defense in, in, in martial arts. And I think that I think resonates really with me what you said, because that seems to be a good sign of the master as well. So speaking of you know, mastery, we've talked about the martial arts sides. What principles do you follow in a negotiation? And then how do you master those principles over time? It's one thing to know the principles, and yeah. you've been doing this for a long time. But how do you master those principles? You're not obviously going into a ring and fighting. Yeah. So how do you practice mastering those principles? So, you know, I, when I was uh, younger, I was so late 90s, when I was sitting in a, a negotiation class that somebody else was teaching at a different business school. I, I won't mention the business school. I won't mention the, the, the faculty member. But it was the last day of class, and the faculty member kept saying to the students, now that you're negotiation experts, dot, 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 now that you're negotiation experts, dot, dot, and I was sitting there, this is 20 years ago, saying, these people are not negotiation experts. I mean, I'm not either at the time. I was like, they just learned a bunch of stuff about negotiation. How are they experts? And in the back of my mind, that sort of always kind of bothered me a little bit. Like, why are we, maybe we're just trying to do that to make them feel like we've taught them a lot and they got a great education. So some years later, uh, when I was teaching uh, at HBS, somebody brought this up in the last day, and they said, you know, so how do we know we've, we've made it? We're, we're a great negotiator. Yeah. And, and that story came to my mind. I said, well, I'm definitely not going to tell them they're a great negotiator right now. I said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be driving on the street one day, and as you're driving, somebody's going to come speeding by, cut you off, almost run you off the road, and just keep going without slowing down. And they're going to know they did it. And normally your reaction in that moment would have been to like honk your horn and flick them off and start swearing and yelling and screaming. But for some reason that day, your first reaction will be, huh, I wonder why they're in such a rush. I wonder if there's something wrong. I you know what? I'm sure I've probably done that to somebody before too. Right. When that becomes your immediate response, when you can immediately see the world the way other people see it, you don't have to be reminded to do it. You don't have to be incentivized to do it. But your natural reaction is to see the world in a way where you naturally take the perspective of other people and try. You don't have to accept it. You have to understand it. When that starts happening, that's probably when you are an expert or a master. In, mm. in that conversation, the word was expertise. But it's probably even a better definition of mastery. Mm. Where, as you said, this becomes a part of you. So you're right, actually, it, in a sense it is. You, you maybe get measured when the amount of time for reaction is infinitesimally small and you see what comes out. Right. And you don't get there without any science. You don't get there without any experience and practice. You don't get there by, without reflecting deeply on the principles themselves. You do all of those and enough time it becomes a part of who you are. And every one of you probably has some mastery in some area, which is maybe closer to what you do, whether it's data analytics, whether it's you're a great musician, whatever it is. And I think a lot of them have that commonality. You need the basics. You need to be taught the basic steps. You need to experience and practice, and you need to sort of meditate on them. You have to think about how these apply in situations that you've never seen before. And right. when they start coming out, then, then you're sort of there. So I know we want to move to some audience questions. So, so why don't we do that? And then uh, if there's not any audience questions, I. Trust me, I have some more questions for you. Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, why don't we take some audience questions? <clears throat> Thank you. Hello, hi, uh, Dr. Deepak. Um, could you give us an actual example about your nego negotiation? I'll give you a, a quick example. I want you to show me or the audience how would you do, uh, what would your strategy be uh, if you are the Lakers GM to negotiate trading for the Anthony Davis? <laughs> uh, I like it. So I don't think I can get into that. Um, <laughs> I'm not tampering. Well, you have no idea. Uh, no. So, so here, here's what I'll say about that. Again, not having followed it in, in maybe even as much detail as, 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 as you have. Um, and I'll draw a parallel. 
what sometimes looks like a failed negotiation, which I think people would say in this case, it looked like there was supposed to be a deal and, and it sort of fell apart. Um, I'm not somebody who looks at a situation like that or to make a parallel, the situation with Donald Trump going to North Korea and coming back with no deal. I think the mistake we sometimes make is to say, oh, they didn't get the deal, there, there's some failure there. No deal is not a wrong outcome. Sometimes no deal is the right outcome. If we're not the right partners for each other, if we don't create value together, if, if what you need at a minimum I cannot give, no deal is the right answer. There's no deals all the time, that's fine. Like I didn't see you buying my house earlier today, that was a no deal, but hey, I value it more than you do. But the problem is when you get a no deal for things that were easy to have been foreseen, that it didn't have to get public, it didn't have to go to the level of uh, offers and counter offers, uh, when, it, when, when, when you see those things happening, you realize that there's actually a failure of negotiation. These people did not do the homework, they did not, behind closed doors, make enough progress to know whether or not this deal may or may not be consummated. You're still gonna have to do some magic, pardon the, <laughs> the pun there, when you get to the table. But I think a lot of the things that, that, that happened here was people and events and things got ahead of the actual negotiation strategy and they took on a life of their own. And it was not so much a failure of negotiation at the table as uh, a failure of getting the pieces in position before you actually get down to the negotiation. So I'll sort of say it at a high level, which is why we often zoom out and we say, okay, let's sort of make sure we understand all the parties, what are all the perspectives, let's do the homework, let's do all of that before we get into the offers and counter offers. I think that it didn't necessarily fall apart there. I think people didn't understand what they're getting into. Um, so. How are you guys doing? Uh, Ricardo Great. Sutherland from MIT Sloan. First and foremost, thank you uh, for, for speaking with us about such an interesting topic. Um, my question for you is, you know, we've been focused on, you know, negotiations, the art and the science behind it. I'd be interesting, I'd be interested to hear, you know, if you guys think that there's any other proxies to like what makes a good negotiator. So any other things that you found, like any other interests that people have that are associated with the skills that are necessary to be an, a great negotiator. Okay. And the reason why I ask that is because there's a talk going on like right now with Malcolm Gladwell and uh -huh. what they spoke about was in terms of mastery for sports, like early on, it's interesting for uh, young people to try out different sports before they focus on one thing yeah. because there's skills that they, you know, garner that eventually help them to become a master at, let's say, tennis like Roger Federer. Yeah. So I'd be interested to hear, you know, based off of what you guys have, have seen and mm -hmm. all the different great negotiators, if there's any skills that you've picked up on or any other uh, proxies or things that they do well that also uh, can point to like, all right, cool, this is gonna yeah. be someone who has a- I'll give you one, and I would love one, uh, even on the martial arts, if there's, if you see something early on in someone that you say, this person's gonna be a great martial artist, I'd be curious. The one thing that I would say is, um, is curiosity, just a natural burning curiosity. Um, and, and sometimes you only have that when you have humility as well. Um, you don't think that you know everything, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how successful you are. You're, you're genuinely curious about things you don't know, about people and how they think. I think people that have that have a good sort of foundation for becoming a great negotiator. Um, I'm not saying it's a requirement. I'm not saying it's gonna correlate at point nine, not, nothing like that. But I will say that it's easy to teach someone how to say and do things that are more aggressive. It may not be your style, right? Physically, it takes a long time maybe, as, as Sensei Nick said, but to say, hey, listen, you know, just ask for more. That, that's sort of easy to do, and then you can coach them through it. So there's certain things in negotiations that are easy to teach, like to be a little bit more aggressive, for example. But what's harder to teach is to be able to step back and, and really learn and understand and, and ask more questions and, and have the humility you need in order to sort of better understand the situation you're in. That's harder to teach. It's harder to supplement. It's harder to substitute. And so people that have that natural curiosity, and they may, maybe they were theater majors, maybe they were, who knows what they were. Um, but if you have that, I think it's, it's a better starting point than if you happen to be very good at you know, convincing people because you, you, you speak well and, and you're aggressive. Well, that's fine too, but that's not as good of a foundation for the hard stuff. Right. I agree. So um, the other side of my world is I'm a finance executive and I get to negotiate deals as well and very expensive, uh, multi-year, complex financial deals. Um, and one thing I've found, whether it's in the martial arts or in the finance world, is patience. And so you might have the art, you might have the science, you might have all the data, you might have the principles in place, but it's amazing how many people 
become impatient when it comes down to it. And they're looking for that short-term gratification. It's waiting out many things can really succeed. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've told my staff when we're negotiating, be patient, step back for a moment, take a longer-term view, and it almost always works out in your benefit. And so what I tell people is, you know, it's funny, the best negotiators I know are very well-rounded outside of the business world. They're generally um, athletic in some kind, whether they're doing yoga and they're running or doing CrossFit. Those things allow you the physical ability to be, to be patient. To be patient means you have to have endurance. To have endurance, you need to be healthy. And so what, one thing you'll see is that, you know, some of the best negotiators, it's not a coincidence, are also usually physically healthy. And they can actually have the stamina to withstand a 10-hour negotiation and to sit in a room across the table where other people are you know, losing steam physically mentally, but if you find, you know, the thing about athletics and the amount of physical and mental stamina that it requires to be good in an athlete, people don't talk about that in the business world, but you actually need it to sit there even at a long, I just sat through a nine hour meeting the other day, and I was looking around the room and thinking about my night before where I trained for three hours to 11 o'clock at night, I felt great. Kept drinking my water. Everybody else was wearing down, and just shirts were untucked, buttons were coming down, and this, people were unraveling by five o'clock. They just we've been going at it since eight with no break. The martial arts have prepared me for excellence in the in the real world. So when I'm negotiating, you know, I have that patience in that long game. Yeah. Incidentally, though, when I have a client who's going into a big negotiation, uh, the most likely final tweet it, it varies, or final uh, text, I should say that I might send to them when they'll say any last minute things, anything I sh I'll usually just send them a picture of the fonts as a, as a last thing, just to, I mean, if you guys know the fonts, happy days, some of you are young, okay. Um, yeah, the fonts, right? You know, just, just, just be cool, right? And it's just, you know, don't, you know, you're, you've done everything you can, you're as prepared as you're gonna be, the situation is as bad as it is, yep. or as good as it is, and now just be cool, just, just, just do what you need to do now, and, and don't be impatient, don't, Sometimes people just have a, a need for closure. They just so they want certainty and closure that they, they just don't spend the extra minutes, hours, days, weeks needed to get to a better spot because they just have just like, now, let's just get it done. You know? For sure. Yeah. Uh, we have something here. here. I don't, you want to pass a mic or you want to just yell? One, one question. Uh, who, who thinks that they have the best last one question? <laughs> oh, one more. A, no, 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 this could be, we might actually select poorly because it's rapid just, fire. Yeah, why, why don't we just go in the middle? Yeah. Martial arts schools, yeah. Yeah, martial arts schools. There's, um, is it just a matter of people have been running fast and not kind of gotten an answer, or is it that there's just not a rationale to do it for whatever reason? I think the demand needs to be created. It's there. But listen, if you think about most martial arts schools, there's going to be two or three instructors. Um, a lot of the traditional martial artists wouldn't even think to approach it that way. Um, I think so a lot of it is, believe it or not, it's not the supply side, it's the demand side. But I think a demand could be created. Um, if you, there's FBI crime stats, they come out late, you know, years later, sometimes they're underreported. I think would be, you can look at, you know, you don't have to go to official government statistics to build this data set. You can actually look at the news and see what actually happened um, through news stories. Aggregate that data and publish it. But to answer your question, um, I don't think people thought it through. I think uh, you could create a demand with that data set. And if you were to combine it with some of these other software applications that are using to manage your school and sell that data set in, so I work for a company called Epsilon, right? We sell data to folks. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great industry. But you know, I would, you know, I would say this. A good opportunity, too. I, I think you're a little unique. I think there's a lot of schools out there that aren't going to change their curriculum just because there's something more important to teach. You see the same thing in, in business schools with, with faculty. Some faculty that are just Both dying to make, be better, to get better at it, to teach with new things and, and bring new things into the classroom, even though it's more work. Right. And other people, they're comfortable. Yep. They got this thing, they, they know how to sell it, and they're doing it. And I think the same thing might be true in the martial arts as well. Which it, it, so it would be a great value add for the ones who want it. Is it a great business proposition? I, that's, a, that's an open question, but I, I agree. I, I wish it was there, but I, but I can imagine there being some of those kinds of barriers to that kind of thing. Anyway, Good question. All right. I think we are calling we're it. Yeah, we're right at 3 o'clock. Thank you all uh, for showing up. And your Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great. Thank you guys. Great. Thanks. Thanks.
If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.